Then Yahweh appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, and he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, My God, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you, do as you, do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it, and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is your wife, Sarah? And he said, There in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Here with the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. A reading from the Gospel according to St. Luke. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the teacher's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted to what he, by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Rabbi, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But Jesus answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. But there is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Beloved community, the gospel of our God. Over two months ago, I had major neck surgery. I'm fine now. But afterwards, I experienced a sore throat and it was painful to swallow. So, to psych me to eat 
despite the difficulty, I would binge watch the great British baking show on PBS and Netflix, hoping I would be inspired by the beautiful food creations. The program is a kinder, gentler reality competition show than the American cutthroat survivor type. Twelve amateur bakers, each introduced with a folksy home video, remarkably everyone having a mom or grandmom who was Julia Child in the kitchen, well, they compete against each other in a series of rounds trying to impress two foodie authority judges with their cooking skills, with one contestant booted out each week. In each episode, the bakers are given three challenges based on the week's theme. For example, tarts, the pastry kind, patisserie, or puddings climaxing with a showstopper to demonstrate their talents by producing a fabulous professional bake with outstanding flavors, such as a boozy, two-tier, seven-different-ingredient-layer Genoese cake wrapped in a chocolate Art Deco collar with a caramel lattice of the Eiffel Tower on top. I'm not making that up. <laughs> All the bakes have time constraints rigorously enforced, which adds to the pressure. The show takes place in an idyllic summer countryside setting, complete with adorable-looking animals and cheerful birdsong, with an ornate colossal tent full of state-of-the-art kitchens, but no air conditioning. I'm fascinated by these mind-boggling technical challenge bakes, some of which contestants are, allowed, are allotted three hours to produce. They could give me three days and I could never make these desserts. Also, the desserts are ones most Americans, and I suspect most Britons, have never heard of, such as hazelnut de croix, a raspberry chic torter, that's a German 20-layer, thin-layer cake, or meringue pavlover, all of which most sane people would buy in a high-end pastry shop rather than try to bake in one's own kitchen. The show has been the number one program in Britain, similar to what American Idol was here in its early seasons. The two judges are both renowned cooking experts in England the 82-year-old food writer Mary Berry, who fascinated Twitter followers when her quirky fact about herself revealed that she actually attends Church of England Sunday worship services. And celebrity chef Paul Hollywood, nicknamed the Silver Fox, who two years ago separated from his wife of 20 years to pursue a bachelor life, if you believe Instagram. Anyhow, they play bad cop, good cop, with Paul's steely glance combined with his ruthless, straightforward, and honest comments, such as, your sticky spice orange Chelsea buns is undercooked, practically raw, and I'm afraid inedible. But Mary, smiling, cushioning the blow with, 
but I love the way you presented it on the plate. Paul and Mary also act as culinary Cassandras or chicken littles forecasting doom, talking almost gleefully amongst themselves about potential tent-leaving disasters, such as he's overbeating the buttercream for his Victoria sandwich, or the jam is too hot to put on her Viennese whirl biscuits, all with the same grave, ominous tone one might refer to a glacier melting in Greenland. Then there are bakers like Kim Joy having an emotional breakdown after realizing she accidentally used salt rather than sugar in her sweet dreams roulade. Or Ian's baked Alaska that melted with him throwing it in the garbage bin and storming out of the tent, producing a social media controversy called Bingate. Now, the English are masters of understatement and a bit more compassionate in their assessments. Unlike Americans, who bluntly would say, this tastes terrible, I wouldn't feed it to a rat, Paul and Mary offer, I'm so disappointed for you, softening the criticism, but leaving no doubt what a failure the baker is, disgracing God, queen, and country. Still, there are life lessons learned from the show, one of the most famous being that your pastry should avoid at all costs the dreaded soggy bottom. A good rule of thumb in other life situations as well. Seriously, rather than sabotage each other, the bakers will come running, helping one another when there is a crumbling confection to rescue before it falls on the floor. Also, looks can be deceiving, because the prettiest creation, when eaten, that can make you want to gag, while a big old mess can taste divine. But perhaps the chief takeaway is to persevere and not be distracted from pursuing your single-minded objective of creating the best dessert you can make, regardless of the curveballs life throws at you whether it be oven irregularities or doing impossible tasks like tempering chocolate in 95-degree humid weather. Even Kim Joy rebounded after her disaster. I'm not sure whether it would be harder to cook for Paul Hollywood or for God, with presumably Jesus more likely to forgive a fallen souffle than Paul. But that was the quandary faced by Martha in our gospel. Now, this is one of those passages which, upon reading it, often our first reaction is, that's not fair. We need Marthas to get our homes ready for visitors, the cleaning, shopping, and cooking, where the process of getting prepared for guests, especially unannounced ones, can leave us too exhausted to enjoy their visit. And remember, Jesus came with an entourage, of at least 12 other people. So this was no quickie, breezy coffee clutch, but something more like an elaborate Thanksgiving feast. The story's most well-known spin is that it prizes Mary's contemplation over Martha's action, which is preposterous because in the passage that precedes this one, the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus tells us how essential it is 
to do service for your neighbors. Jesus tells us how essential it is that we need both the mystic and the activist, and the church could never survive without her Marthas. Witness our own Nathan and Gail, and yes, Jan and Mary this morning. Remember that Mary and Martha are sisters. History has grouped them together like Laurel and Hardy. So they needed and complemented each other, balancing both aspects so they can be mutually beneficial. Also, from our Genesis reading, we hear about how vital hospitality was in a hostile climate, with Abraham presented as a generous host to his three divine visitors. Though notice, it is Sarah and the servants doing most of the grueling preparation. So Martha's hospitality or hard work is not the issue, but rather that Martha is worried and distracted by many things. The Greek word used here means being pulled or dragged in different directions, suggesting division or fragmentation so disruptive that Martha couldn't enjoy Jesus' company. Jesus is saying to her, don't just do something, stand there and listen to me. Why? Well, the key words may be the ones that introduce the story. Now, as they went on their way, their way heading towards Jerusalem and the cross. This was not a leisurely Sunday brunch outing, but Jesus' last journey, maybe poignantly lingering with dear friends for the final time before facing his destiny. And it is worth noting that in first century Palestine, it would have been unheard of for a woman to welcome a man into her home, nor would a woman sit as a student or disciple at the foot of a male teacher. Boundaries are being crossed. So women here are included, empowered, and valued. Though this subtle dismantling of patriarchal conventions might have been reinforced if Jesus and his mostly male companions had offered to help prepare some of the food <laughs> or instead order out pizza, wash the dishes, and clean up. Still, I think we need to hear Jesus' words to Martha, not as a criticism, but an invitation. Jesus knows the heavy burdens, obligations, and expectations we place on ourselves as well as our resentments. One can almost hear Martha angrily banging pot lids to get Mary's attention. Yet all she accomplished is questioning Jesus' love for her, fixating on me talk, my sister has left me to do all the work by myself, and then ordering Jesus how to solve her problem. She wants Jesus to affirm her busyness, yet perhaps the story is not about approving multitasking, but focusing on the one thing needed. This weekend, we're commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. I was eight years old at the time, and it was a key event in my young life. I remember keeping a scrapbook of all the newspaper articles on the entire mission. 
I was allowed to stay up well past midnight, which was a very big deal, to watch Neil Armstrong walk on the moon and say his famous words. At that time, my family was living in Bethpage, New York, on Long Island, right behind the headquarters of Grumman Aerospace Corporation, which built the lunar rocket lander used by those Apollo 11 astronauts. As a reward, that September, we got to meet Neil Armstrong in person in our school auditorium when he came to Beth Page to shake the hands of the Grumman workers. And later, as students, we were bused, in the positive meaning of that word, to our local public library as a field trip to become the first people in the nation to see the moon rocks under Fort Knox-like security. <clears throat> it was all so thrilling. And last week, Michael Collins, Apollo 11's 89-year-old surviving command module pilot, formally thanked the Army of 400,000 Americans, the engineers, researchers, and technicians from more than 2,000 private companies and universities, the hidden figures of women mathematicians and sewers of the parachutes needed for splashdown, and the countless jobs, big and small, that were needed to make that mission the success story it was. And it was united teamwork, steadfast vision and driving force, collaboration with a willingness to cooperate and leave one's ego at the door to achieve President Kennedy's 1961 goal of committing this nation before the decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth, which involved great financial commitment and sacrifice to the tune of $24 billion. It's $165 billion today. Courage and ingenuity. Now our motives for accomplishing this dream weren't all noble, the chief one being to beat the Russians as a victory in the Cold War. But from the unskilled worker to the most brilliant scientist, all were focused single-mindedly and passionately on doing their very best, refusing to accept limitations, knowing a failure to do so, even in minor details such as a wrong-sized screw, could cost lives and ruin the mission. And we wonder, couldn't we summon similar resources and national will used to land on the moon to solve global warming, evidenced by the extreme heat wave blanketing most of the US this weekend? There could be no distractions for those Apollo workers, just as there weren't any for the successful winning cooks on the Great British Baking Show, nor apparently for Martha. We all have distractions in our lives, whether it be the latest app on our smartphones, a new electronic gadget, a scary medical diagnosis, family dysfunction, relationship troubles, a secret addiction, financial setbacks, the 24-7 news cycle, 
the latest social media scandalous text, or just plain exhaustion. Jesus' message is that we tend to measure our worth by how busy we are, how much we accomplish, or how well we meet others' expectations. Jesus here is both guest and host, offering his hospitality in the form of his presence. So the one thing needed is to listen to him. The joy of being in his presence can lift us beyond our daily limitations, helping us forget the worries, concerns, and headaches that hold us back or lead us in the wrong direction. Only then can we experience that we are loved for who we are, regardless of what we do. If we aren't woken up to God's loving presence in our lives, we won't be able to do the work of making this world a little bit more equal and compassionate. Like Martha, we can't do everything, but we surely can do something. We can forgive. We can show up in a ministry of presence. We can protest injustice, such as the inhumane detention of migrant children at the border. Surely, as a nation, we can be more hospitable to our visiting guests. But mostly, we can love. The chief way to listen to God breaking into our lives is through the people we love and who love and need us, because this is the avenue where God comes nearer, touches us, and opens our hearts. For most of us, with Jesus, it's not love at first sight, but a gradual maturing process of growth with increasing affection and shifting our priorities so we can notice the sacred in our midst finally giving our full attention to God. So, beloved community, whether we're baking our very best meringue pavlova or aiming for the moon, despite all the distractions in our lives, can we choose the better part and do the one thing needed to listen to God who was wildly, madly, and deeply in love with us.